the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Danny Cannell. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson here to get your weekend started right with a bunch of questions from the big old bag of mail. A reminder, if you want to get a question in, and man, some of these are expansive. Some of these are thought-provoking. Some of these are silly, and I love them all. Uh, We try to put together a a good diverse batch each week, but we need it from you. So five stars, leave a review, and then in that review, put your mailbag question. The regulars know what to do, and uh, and you can be a part of a future mailbag episode. So we're going to begin with one that uh, I think we didn't... The first time I read it, I didn't quite understand... Um, what they were going for, but now with a, another week to look at it, this is this is going to make sense. This question's from Manny. Love the pod, especially when crunching numbers during the workday. Had a bar top discussion with some old college friends when we were discussing which schools were at their best when they hit their peak. Think of Alabama today, Miami in the 80s, FSU in the 90s, UF, UF dot 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 never LOL. Okay, all right. Whatever. Uh, If all Power 5 schools are at their peak at the same time, who comes out on top? This includes coaching, recruiting, developing with their hair on fire. Try first breaking it down by state or conference and see who's left at the mountaintop. So the first time I heard this, I thought this was going to be like a all-time teams play against each other. But rereading it, I see it more of like a resources, investment, like imagine that, uh, you know, these Texas is all the way of everything that Texas can be. And Oklahoma is everything Texas can be. Alabama is at the top of its game. Ohio State's at the top of its game. Some of these programs that, you know, we say have fallen off a little bit if, and I understand it's a zero sum game, but if all of these programs are all at the top of their game at the same time in this weird uh, in this weird world where there is just limitless amounts of players and resources and investments, who do you think ends up winning the national championship? USC. Okay. Why? I'm sorry. I just, I wanted to go first. Cause I think that's the real answer. Okay. Why? Because if they're not screwing around, if they're recruiting at peak efficiency, nobody else out, out there West of the Rockies can touch them. That means they're locking down the state of California they're plucking the right guys from Phoenix and 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 and, uh, and Las Vegas, you know, and they they get a couple kids nationally. Maybe if everybody else is operating at true peak efficiency out there, like think about if, if LSU w- was operating peak efficiency and so was Auburn and Florida State and Georgia and Florida and Miami and Tennessee, like the Southeast each other. Yes, Ohio State. Well, excuse me. I, I'm going to go with USC. I think that's 
far and away the right answer here. We, we talk about Oregon's recruiting and they do great. If USC was really all in and they had a coach who wasn't Clay Helton and they're not screwing around, nobody else is, is touching them. Yeah, no, I was going to go USC too. Um, That's why we're we're going to go USC too? Like that much yeah. of a slam yeah. dunk? Like, because he, nobody else out there can touch them, Danny. They, they are like, like but they is have the right talent of first out there refusal as good as it top. is? Is the talent out there that they can dominate? Is, is, is it as good as the talent that's in the South? Would you rather have like 90% of the California kids you want or like 20% of the Southeastern kids you want? There is more talent in the Southeast, but there is also a lot more competition. Like think if Tennessee wasn't a freaking clown show administratively, which like, you know, Danny White now, they probably won't be, but that'll take a while. You know, like they're getting some kids. Clemson's getting kids. I'm very. I think that that's a separate debate. Like, who are but we going to pick in the southeast? But this, well, I think it's got to be Alabama. Yes. You know, as much as I would like to make the case for Florida State in the '90s, because I do think the way the question was proposed was like, I'm trying. I'm kind of a little bit confused with where the question is. Me too. Because yeah. so I, like is everybody has their their stuff together. Everybody, everybody has a really good best. recruit. Like everybody has has the right coach, they're they're recruiting well. Like they're not a mess internally. They're not on probation. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think yeah. that's the way he meant it. That is, I think, yeah, that's it. And the problem with the question, or at least the problem with the premise of the question, is that if everybody's at their best, then technically nobody can be at their best. Right. Yeah, because of the zero-sum game with recruiting, yeah. with investments right. and resources. And, and again, that's why I wanted to say I understand. Because, Danny, I read it a little bit as like, would the 2001 Miami team beat the 19, you know, 90, whatever? Like, I, I was looking first at that, but I think that the question's trying to hit a little bit more at the idea of, like, because USC, I believe, is a good answer. I think Ohio State has a good argument. And I think that Texas probably has a good argument. I, I think that... Ohio State has a better argument than most SEC and Southeastern schools because of the it's got less competition around it in its area. But you got to remember, in this scenario, Michigan's back at full capacity. Penn State's back at full capacity. All you know, these other programs that have kind of slipped in recent years as Ohio State pulled away are now right at the same level as Ohio State. So that does make Ohio State's path a little murkier than it is right now. Full capacity, Oregon still makes it to the national championship game. They have twice. So I do think that while USC has a path that is far more manageable than anybody in the SEC or the ACC, I can't say that USC is just going to cakewalk all the way there. Yeah, but I, I think you can also argue that Oregon has really taken advantage of USC slipping more than any other program out West has because Oregon has been the program that has gone into California, I think, more successfully and recruited the top talent from that area when USC has, you know, missed out on or just kind of stepped backwards. So if USC is operating at full capacity, I don't think Oregon disappears because obviously it's got the money. It's got all that stuff. It's just, I think that USC has a better shot. In the Southeast, is it Alabama? We said, we were mentioning that earlier. I didn't, didn't get everybody's responses. I still think it's Alabama as the number one. Like I, I still think them at their best beats USC at their best. Well, you can just look around and say, "There's my evidence," you know. Right, right, because yeah, they're yeah. at their best right now, and this might be one of the most impressive runs. Six out of twelve is seen. stupid. But let's yeah. remember when USC was at its best not too long ago, it was dominating. It was winning multiple national titles. So it's not when USC is at its best. The difference between it and what Alabama is right now really isn't that significant 
And honestly, if in this scenario, every single team in the Southeast is at peak, I don't know that Alabama would be the best choice simply because I don't think the state of Alabama has the same kind of talent base that a state like Georgia and Florida does. So if those programs are all competing at max capacity in LSU with all the talent that's in the state of Louisiana, I think that if everybody's at 100%, Alabama might not be the number one program in the Southeast. I think that other programs would have a stronger case. Am I, I totally agree with that. Okay, so am I off for giving Alabama the advantage because of its like geographic midpoint between Texas and Florida? Like the fact that when you're trying to like look at it, you can essentially break into a couple different recruiting zones, and they have broken into you know Florida, of course, a lot, but also Texas, Ohio State, of course, also taking advantage of Texas. But is that is that your argument for Alabama? Is that a is that a worthy argument for Alabama in the Southeast? Just the way that it's positioned in that um, sort of midpoint between those two hotbeds. My counter to that would be though, if Texas is at one hundred percent, what Texas kid is not going to Texas to go to Alabama instead? I, I agree. Right. Also, like, don't you think if Saban had stayed at LSU, he would have done the exact same thing yes. there that he did at Alabama? I do too. Yeah. I think you can actually argue that like. LSU is interesting. There's no in-state competition for them. LSU and, may and, be being the Southeastern program that could come sure. out of this. If, it, if like, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to sit here and argue that LSU would have won more titles if Saban had stayed than Bama did with, with Saban there. But keep in mind, like, Saban got to build this thing when Urban Meyer was going through all that personal stuff, sort of on, on the, like, he was on the downslope. Les Miles really wasn't like he wasn't doing exactly what Nick did. Mark Richt was getting his ass kicked in the state of Georgia in recruiting by Nick in fairness, but like he didn't recruit like Kirby does. Like they didn't keep talent in the state. It was Phil Fulmer, you know, like I don't want to diminish what Nick Saban's done. He's the best coach in the history of the sport by, by a ton. Uh, But like there are other programs that have very similar resources. And if they had the same level of coach, it makes it a hell of a lot harder to do at Alabama what you've done. So to your point, in this scenario, there's no way that 84% of their roster is made up of four and five stars. Right. 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 Yeah. Man. But nobody out there, if they're operating at peak efficiency, is going to beat USC for the vast majority of kids that they want from west of the Rockies. Mm-hmm. All right, so all West Coast I kids. thought I was going to be slick when I pulled out the USC after you guys spent 10 minutes debating like SEC schools and then Bud just jumps right out with USC. It's like, damn it. Are right. Florida State, Miami out of the conversation because of the state See, like pulls them apart? Because I would say Florida State, <clears throat> if they had kept things going and Jimbo didn't you know, have his eyes set on Texas A&M. And let's say, let's say Jimbo was all in on Florida state and like, was like, I'm going to stay here and I want to be the next Bobby Bowden. Could that have been in the conversation or, you know, when Bobby Bowden was there and it was rolling, but it seems to me that it'd be the same issue that Alabama goes through because I don't know if we would have had as much talent coming through. Although Miami was pretty dang good when we were playing too. So, you know, when the teams in Florida have won a national title, if you think back to it, right? One of the other two teams was somewhat down. You can have a national title come out of the state of Florida if another team is up, but for the most part, the national titles have not come 
when both teams or when both other teams were up. For instance, you know, FSU won in 93. Florida was good in 93, and Miami was also pretty good. But Miami was not as good as they had been in, like, 91. Florida was not yet to that, like, peak, you know, Warful Gators there. They, they, they got there later. When Florida got there in 96, Miami was really starting to fade. Uh, they had just gone on probation, right, I believe, for, for the Pell Grant stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, they were on, on the downturn. When FSU won in 99 – Kind of the same thing, right? Spurrier maybe wasn't recruiting quite as hard back then. He would go to the Redskins shortly thereafter. Miami absolutely was was getting worked in recruiting from about 97 to 99. Bush Davis would come and, and turn that around pretty quickly, but he was doing it against later career Bobby Bowden, who started to lose a lot of assistance. And then uh, Spurrier had gone to the – when did he go to, to, to Washington? Um, oh, oh one. I think, yeah, yeah. I think because then you know he had Grossman there. I think, uh, but like, it, but I guess the the point stands there. And then Urban Meyer came in. Miami has lost Butch Davis, and Urban Meyer is primarily recruiting against Larry Coker, who won a national title with Butch's players, and then very late career Bobby Bowden, and like he got the benefit of both those programs being down quite significantly. Um, you know beat up for some dudes who grew up fans of, of both those programs. And then when Jimbo came, Miami was still a mess. They were, had like Randy Shannon and everybody. And then Urban, Urban only coached against Jimbo for one year. Mm-hmm. And then it's Muschamp. So, correct. And Muschamp could recruit, to be fair. He just couldn't find out how to run an offense and I guess still can't. But that I, I think that's a good illustration actually of this concept. When all three teams are at their peak, the schools in Florida, for the most part, have not been able to win at all. Interesting. So I'm, I just can't wait for the aggregation of Nick Saban's national titles are only because other teams sucked. Overrated? Question mark. If you really want to piss off a fan base, play this game with Fulmer's Tennessee in the late nineties, where it's like Tennessee is only successful because Alabama is in trouble because Florida's on probation, LSU screwing around, Ole Miss is. You know, they had Eli, but then, like, you know, that was later. Uh, Clemson was not recruiting very well yet. North Carolina, Mac Brown had had left, so mm-hmm. their recruiting kind of went in the tank. Tennessee was still pulling kids from California. I, I did this. I'll, I'll pull this article up. Fulmer's record against the coaches you, you would actually consider good coaches in that era is horrendous. But he was just not facing them that often. He he had a lot of good breaks there, and uh, and a couple good breaks in a 1998 BCS national championship game too, like a QB breaking his neck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and bump this one up in the queue just because we were talking about Saban, and this is a, a somewhat similar concept. As uh, questions from D4 Sharpshooter, been listening to this podcast for several years, and it's still the best there is. Love the unbiased opinions and information that you can't get anywhere else. Mailbag question. What is the lowest tier team you can think of that if Nick Saban was their head coach, he would be able to win a national championship over a five-year window? And this is, all right, so the, the evidence we've mentioned often is that it's like, well, Nick Saban was at Michigan State. You know, what was the ceiling for Michigan State? Far, it was not even a Big Ten championship. It was far from a national championship championship. 
I think yeah, that I have it, to look at Nick Saban now and consider his growth as a coach than to look at Nick also, Saban at that point in his career. Not only also, is growth he's Nick is a, Saban now, right? <laughs> the growth of the brand to yeah. be able to get players to go there wherever it was. I think that would change. I think the results would be different at Michigan State if he was there. Now, could he win a championship? Could he overtake Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, those other programs there? I don't think so. No? I think there's a, I think there's no, a cap. No, I, I don't on, think so. No, I think there would be a cap on how many guys you could convince to go to like a Michigan State. Oh, let's say, like, would you think the results would be that much different if he's at Iowa State? No. No, I, Saban cannot win a national title at Iowa State. Not in five years. Not in five years. With the I think if if he was Saban, like with the brand, with everything, and had that appeal, and he went to a school like that, and he got the time to build it up, I think maybe he'd get to at least you know he'd get playoff berths and he'd be competing because I think after a while the recruiting would build on. But in only five years, I don't think Nick Saban can step into a mid tier big power five program. And I don't, I'm not calling Iowa state a mid tier program right now. Okay. So please don't come in. I, that's generous think, without Matt Campbell. That's yeah. But I'm just saying, I don't think he <laughs> could step into a mid tier power five right now and win a national title in five years. Cause no. I think that he would need that much time just to get the roster in shape to be competing for a national title. I don't think he's an outlier is what I would like with yeah. Bud's formula that you came up with the blue chip ratio. I don't think he's winning anywhere that has less than 50% four and five star players like I don't like he's a great coach but we've proven statistically it's almost is it almost impossible to win a national championship without the talent in the field okay so Washington I say yes five years I say Nick Saban shows up at Washington dominate yeah especially currently if he went out there now Washington's pretty good. They have a playoff appearance. USC still has Clay Helton. <laughs> Wild he was, shots at Clay Helton. You guys would I be mean, eating your words. Watch that's out. That's who USC should hire. USC should hire Nick Saban. <laughs> um, Tennessee. You're here first. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about the just. Tennessee's a no opinions. for me. Tennessee's a no? Tennessee's a no? Oh, I think yeah. Tennessee is absolutely. I think he could within five years. I think those In were five years? I think, see, I think he would be able to. I think he they have be able they have the recruit. possible sanctions coming. Yeah, I didn't like remember, remember why they were able to to you know fire Pruitt without the buyout. They turned. Yeah, himself- yeah, I didn't think about the sanctions. I thought as a program a healthy spot. Yeah, you're right. Without that'll that will discourage any recruit who's like, yeah, I want to go from Nick Saban. Well, if you're not playing in bowl games or <laughs> if you can't play for a championship, they're not going to go there. Nebraska. Yeah. No, not in five years. I, I think it's 10. an interesting one, Chip. Me too. Like he's like the ultimate resource hog and resource maximizer at the same time. Like the guy is constantly getting people to give not only him, but the program more money, finding new ways to innovate, throwing money at the problem with really smart people, finding new edges. Once people realize what, what his edges are, Uh, Nebraska is a school that I think would give him absolutely whatever he wanted money wise. So, I think it, it's an interesting one because they have like much more tradition than Iowa State does, right? The surrounding talent is similar to what Iowa State has in that there's really not many players who in Nebraska who will make up a national championship-type team. You know, could he recruit nationally? I, you can go to California from Nebraska. You can get some kids from California. 
Yeah. You can get some kids to fly up from, from Florida. Geographically, that's, that's tougher. Mm-hmm. And another thing to consider too, like 24 seven hasn't released its 2021 rankings yet, but if you look at the 2020 rankings, the team talent rankings, Nebraska ranks 24th, which isn't bad, obviously, but it's behind Mississippi state, North Carolina, South Carolina, Stanford, Washington. So if Saban takes over at Nebraska and he gets a great class in year one, improves the team overall, it's not going to improve it enough to be competing for a big 10 title after two classes, be competing for a division title after three classes. Maybe you're competing for a big 10 title. So maybe it's just, they would have to be three or four fantastic classes. Like, and you couldn't afford to really miss to get Nebraska. I think from where it is now, where honestly it might be a six and six team in 2021 to winning a national title. Cause it's could hard to win a national title. Could he do it at, at A&M or yes. Penn state? Yes. Yes. I think so too. Yeah. What if he what if he was like, I'm gonna go back to my roots and go back to West Virginia? Not in no. five years. No. Nope. Probably not Damn. even. In. I don't think so either. Let's, I think let's, it, I think there's like a top twenty, what do you think? Top twenty programs he could go to? Michigan. I think there's more than twenty. Just Michigan, I think he could. Yeah, absolutely. Five years, yeah, I think yeah. he could at Michigan. Miami. Although I don't know if Michigan would be as willing to give him everything that he wants or demands. That's a good point. That without a doubt, I was, Miami. I don't think he takes the Miami job if he doesn't know that they have the money. Yeah. So I'm going to say if he takes it, then then that assu- that assumes well, they this, have the money. But in this world, which we're talking about, we're assuming all these programs are just willing to back up 10 million lifetime contract for him to go. Hey, make build us a championship. What's it going to take? We're like if we're having this crazy discussion, we have to be under that assumption, right? And I think if Miami said, "Sure, blank slate, blank check, whatever you need," I think he could bring a championship to Miami. Well, what there's is, willing and able, though. Right. Like right. Mi- Michigan Fair. is certainly able. Are they willing? Yes. Does, is Miami yes. able to to pay that much and have that big of a, a support staff and kind of shadow recruiting staff and stuff? How far does Saban take like an Arkansas or a Missouri or a Mississippi State by year five? Sugar Bowl. Mm. Ten and two. Like he's still, New Year's he's Six in that Bowl. area where he still has all the same kind of recruiting connections. Obviously, his name's very well known. It's the SEC, so that brand is huge. And we know that SEC programs are willing to spend money on their football programs. So it's like I feel like I feel like you could probably get to a, a lower tier of the SEC than you could of in other Power Five programs, and still have a non-zero chance of Saban winning a national title in five years. Okay, what about two ACC ones? Florida State. No question. He gets it done in five years, or is the gap from like the the I last the peak? in bad shape right now, so I don't know. No, I would but say I think he could within five years. I think he could. I think it's an easy yes because of where you are. They have more resources than Miami does, and the most importantly, like the APR stuff, which you know that like the APR situation that Jimbo left Willie in, like they were dangerously close to like being bowl banned by not having enough kids graduate. Like the last two years, most kids were not going to class. Um, period. Like their APR score was like no power. Like it was well below other power five teams. It was in, it, like it was in like Louisiana Monroe type territory schools that just have no resources. So whoever really no the staffer is, whoever the staffer is that's supposed to go to class and sit in the back and make sure that all <laughs> the kids are in there was just not doing it. That's kind of the one success that Willie had. Like his kids went to class, they matriculated. Um, 
at least the ones that didn't transfer out because you know obviously portal and stuff but like they're not in a they're not in like bowl band territory anymore for apr um this is a good time to flip the roster i I think he could do it all right one more acc one what about north carolina Mm. 35 percent on the blue chip ratio right now i think he could do it yeah it's it's a state that's becoming more populous more talented it's in the southeast the competition in that division is not significant. I, I, I also think what would change like the, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say, I, I also think that would kind of change a lot in this question is it's like, it's win a national title in five, in five years. I think if you change it to competing for a national title in five years, there'd be it opens up. It opens up a lot of options. Cause I think he's that good. Well, unless you believe the nonsense that the you know the reporters there got from the quotes from the playoff committee yesterday, we're going to have a twelve teamer in twenty twenty three. Oh, so the, like you're, everybody's competing at that point, right? Right. Uh, well, I, at that point, I feel like competing is getting to the final four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just not even making That's it to playoff. That's not enough. Coming up on the other side. Speaking of that twelve team playoff. The calendar is going to change a little bit, and that is going to have some consequences. That is going to change the way that things uh, look, particularly maybe on the coaching carousel. We got a couple questions about that. Going to get into that and much more next. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, You transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, Roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Cover 3 listeners, we wanted to let y'all know about what's on CBS Sports HQ this week. As always, CBS Sports HQ is the network to start your sports news day at 8 a.m. Eastern Time with Morning Buzz. It's an hour of highlights, news, and all the days need to know. Then come back, I mean, or you could just leave us on all day, at 6 p.m. when we break down all of that night's action and release dozens of picks from the best analysts and cappers from all across the sports world. How do you watch CBS Sports HQ? It's easy. Go to your Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, I mean, really, most connected TVs, and just look for that CBS Sports app. Fire it up. Check out HQ. It's the only 24-7 free sports streaming network. 
So the fallout, a uh, couple of questions here. I'm going to do two back to back because they're uh, both tied to the same basic idea. Uh, first one goes as such. Um, one of the major fallouts from the 12 team playoff and the auto bursts for the top six conference champs will be the coach hiring process. Do you envision more group of five coaches staying or some top assistants going to group of five jobs over places that are stuck in the middle or bottom of power five conferences. Not only will it give them a better chance to make the playoffs, not necessarily a better chance at winning it in parentheses, but it could lead to more job security and less pressure. Unlike some of the major programs than this. So that's more about the level of job that you're going to playoff access and the like, whether a job is attractive. Now this one is interesting. Will the 12-team 12, 12 playoff mean less coach turnover? A bunch of coaches will now say, hey, I made the playoff. I'm amazing. And will salaries and bonuses decrease for them given the hurdle for the playoff is lower? Why pay you more for something that lots of coaches are doing? Hmm. I think it's an interesting question, and I think it could go both ways, honestly, or it could not change anything at all. I, I, I understand where it's coming from, where it's like, well, maybe it will lessen the pressure, lessen the turnover because coaches will be accomplishing more. But at the same time, maybe that'll be the case early. But I would think that over the long haul, like it'll eventually it'll just be, well, getting to the playoffs, not enough because it's going to be at some point, like if a school gets to the playoff a couple of times, it's like, awesome. All right. The first few times it's, you get there, it's really exciting. It's really fun. But it's like you see with anything now where a coach takes over at a program like Matt Campbell takes over Iowa State. It's awesome right now. They're playing better than they ever have before. They're at probably the peak of their program, blah, blah, blah. But if you go five years in the future from now and Matt Campbell is still there and they're still going eight and four, nine and three, eventually eight and four, nine and three becomes a disappointment because you want to be 10 and two, 11 and one, 12 and oh. So every time you're successful, it just raises the expectations further. So I think that the more likely scenario here, the more likely cycle is Early on in the process, it's going to be good for coaches. But then eventually, once it becomes the norm, it'll be just like anything else where it's not getting there, simply not good enough. I think it's going to be more like I think you'll see you'll see coaches given extensions because they made the playoff and maybe had a win in the playoff, just like we've seen coaches given extensions after a good season and they've made a bowl, a big bowl, and they've gotten a win there. And then I think you'll see coaches get fired that maybe made the playoff, but they got blown out in the first round. You know, like I, I think it'll, but I think the really interesting part of that question is what does it mean for the group of five coaches? And is there going to be more money coming their way so that they can afford? Like I've always believed that UCF or Houston or Cincinnati could be really like sleeping giants if they got playoff access. And now that they're in that conversation and they they appear to be getting it, like it is easier to get there with those schools. Like, so would you, and you, you get an opportunity to, to play for a national championship. I do agree that the pressure somewhat, clearly it's not as big as the SEC, but it wouldn't be as big as a lot of schools that are out there. So I think that might make it more attractive where maybe you don't see that stepping stone job jump quite as much. In a 12-team playoff era, is UCF a better job than Tennessee? Potentially. I think, I think that you're right around that line because I was going to say that UCF, Houston, and Cincinnati are better than one contract jobs. If you think Tennessee is a one contract job, then the answer is yes. 
I don't know if I will 100% buy that, but if you were to, you know, take some of those other some of those other positions in a similar spot where it's like you just you do not have much of a chance at all of escaping your conference. I think you stay at UCF Houston or Cincinnati. The resources are so much better at Tennessee, especially with the new SEC deal, than they're going to be at UCF. So I still think Tennessee is probably better in the long term, although I've argued that I think it's probably a one-contract job because expectations are out of whack and you have a realistic chance to make the playoff at UCF. But the expectations at UCF might get out of whack as well where they actually expect you to make the playoff with more frequency than I think any G5 team is likely to have. To the other part of the question, I, I think Danny really nailed it on, on the G5 stuff. My guess is that they will renegotiate some contracts to where making the playoff will uh, not have quite the same bonus as making a four-team playoff did. It'll probably be something north of making a New Year's Six Bowl. Uh, and, and for the long term of the sport, guys, I, I'm very interested. Once we get out of like the COVID roster management situation that we're in, that's going to take two, three more years. If the early signing period stays around. I'm interested in seeing if ADs are going to survey the landscape and say, hey, it takes longer to turn a program around now because that first recruiting class you have is going to be crap. You only have four weeks to meet these kids and put them in. A lot of times these quote-unquote four-stars you're getting are available for a reason, and it ain't a good one, right? Otherwise, a team that did not just have a huge coach firing would probably be, be signing them up in most cases. So I think if ADs are smart, they're going to start to take a look at some of these attrition rates from the early classes these guys signed in the ESP era, and they might actually become more patient. Or I think the, the prudent thing is to become more patient, give more give guys more time to turn things around, because we're going to see, I believe, if you, if you keep the current kind of hiring and firing timelines, your roster turnover is just huge. Uh, but maybe I don't know how the playoff will play into that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, the problem I think there is that even if the ADs become more patient, will the fan base ever become more patient? But this timeline is yeah. going to be nuts because you're going to have top coaching candidates in playoffs where if I'm a school that's looking to make a hire, I have to wonder whether or not I'm going to wait for the playoffs to go. Because if you're a head coach, I mean, do you think we will see a head coach accept another job than lead his old team into the playoff? We've seen him stick with them for a bowl game, but I, I don't think that's going to happen for the playoff. And so that, you know, now that we've opened up the field, that means the kind of coaches that we get in the college football playoff are going to be different. And some of them are going to be candidates for top jobs based on the success they've had. I, I think that is a risky and fascinating, like calendar timeline decision-making Now we just saw tech. How about this? We just saw Texas let Tom Herman go through the whole early signing period only to fire him right after new year's day that might be a preview of what it looks like for the hiring process for the very top jobs in the college football playoff era. By the way, uh, Caden Salter, by far the best player, in my opinion, in Tennessee's class they just signed, just got uh, dismissed from the program. Yo. That's not good. For another arrest. Yeah. Go uh, on. Quarterback, by yeah. the way. Back, back to the question of, Chip, what you bring up, like, all I'm going to say is that the first time that we have an interim coach coaching a first round playoff game, I'm just going to be the Kermit <laughs> sipping tea meme. Just like, hmm. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you solved problems, but you created more. 
It, not it seems happen. like we got the answer to the question that the uh, Cover Three Pod Twitter account tweeted last night from the. Uh... <laughs> it will not happen. Well, you know, well I think go, going back to like the the G five thing with the contracts. I I don't know what I don't. It's going to be interesting to see, Danny, like what you brought up, like the kind of impact it has, because I really don't think we're going to see a scenario where more than one G5 team is making the playoffs. So it also goes right. back to Bud's question about UCF or Tennessee being the better job. Cause it's like, I think that G5s will have more access. It's just, I think there's going to be 60 G5s playing for one spot. Mm. Which, but it's more access than they had. Oh, for sure. But yeah. it's like, cause like people bring up like last year, like coastal Carolina would have been in it. We would have had two G5 teams. Well, but at those one, at the, is it easier to run the table at UCF or Tennessee? Oh, UCF. Much UCF. Right, no question. UCF. Same thing with Cincinnati, same thing with Houston, Boise, any of those schools. So there's an advantage there that the competition, those 60 teams for one spot, is easier. But, but how many same teams? Scenario, Tennessee might not have to run the table to make the playoff. Tennessee True. might, it could be nine yep. and three and get in. Yep. Yep. That's 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 a really good question, by the way. Like that's one I'm glad we took, but we could also done an entire show on that. <laughs> Just, there, well, there's so many little angles like that. That's a really good whoever asked that. that I appreciate that. That's a really good one. Uh, you can thank it was a combination of uh, DC and Rach. They, right. they brought the it was you know two questions I'm, like one topic. I'm thinking Rach, I don't, I don't DC. I don't think he had much to do. <laughs> um, all right. This was from, I wrote, this is kind of a quickie. Uh, I often hear Bud talk about how not all offers that kids receive are committable. What does that mean? I'm sure there are contingencies with getting accepted to school and whatnot, but in a football sense, I don't quite get it. Can you help me understand the difference in the types of offers that staffs give out? Go Cats, L's down, Kennan in Kentucky. Oh man. So this is kind of complicated, but essentially as a, as a coaching staff, you have to go after your top targets while still keeping your backup plans warm, right? Because you're not going to land all of your top targets. And oftentimes it's too early to know uh, if you're going to land those top targets. So you have to throw out offers to other guys. But if those guys actually wanted to commit to those offers, they would be told, hey, not yet, or more likely, Hey man, like we only allow commits to to commit when the head coach is in the office because you have to commit to him, but he's on vacation right now. He's not available to meet with you right now. Or hey, like a little more honest, we're still trying to figure out exactly what our our board looks like. We'd like to uh, see how you look in the, in summer camp. If you come up here, you know maybe have a private workout for us. We want to keep monitoring you during spring or or during during the fall. But it, it's basically just keeping other options alive for the school and stringing them out as long as you can, because what can't happen is you go all in on plan a you miss, and then you have to start a brand new relationship with plan B like that needs to be an active and ongoing relationship. And the best recruiters are those who are able to sort of manage that. Now you might say, but why don't they just not offer, but still keep talking to the kid? Well, kids want to claim offers. It's uh they want to believe they have an offer. They want to oftentimes post it on social media for clout and like their coaches want to like the high school coaches and, and their handlers want to make sure they get offers, which I don't blame them. Right. Like if the school is not willing to say you have an offer, then how, how serious is that school about you? Um, and nobody wants to be thought of as a backup plan, but 
look, about 90% of recruits out there are somebody's backup plan, <laughs> you know? So uh, that's basically how that works. There are definitely uh, times where we see where a kid, quote unquote, gets an offer and then leaves the building after his visit and he tells the, uh, the media assembled outside, hey, I'm going to commit. And then they kind of have to find a way to walk it back. Uh, oftentimes, coaching staffs have told the kid no and like, hey, we're going to let you, quote unquote, decommit from us, right? So it makes it look like it's your decision mm. when really like, because they don't want to embarrass the kid. They don't want to anger the high school and, and the, the parents, but just like, hey, there's a miscommunication. I didn't really commit yet. Oftentimes, actually, these staffs will let the kid stay on their commit list on 24-7 arrivals, give him some time. That way, he doesn't look like it was a mistake. It's more of like a Hey, you know, after I've reconsidered this, we'll take some other visits, and I'm I'm gonna open back up to find the the right fit for me. I I still love you know school X. I mean, there are so many secrets that you have revealed to me, and I just put myself in like these fan, in the shoes of the fan base who is like, oh no, we lost a commit, and it might be like, yeah, well, it's because your recruiting class is getting better. It's good. It's yeah. good that they're gonna be able to have that scholarship available for somebody else. It's uh, it's strange. I mean, it's I, I mean, it's not the dirty laundry of the recruiting business, is it? Is it something that is like spoken about on the beat, like pretty often, and it's very well known? It's just not necessarily a something that's shared by college football fans across the country. No, I mean, I, I think it's pretty well discussed nowadays. Uh, you see schools throw out three or four hundred offers for a recruiting class of twenty-two. I mean, there's gonna be some guys who are not quote unquote takes at at the moment. Um, I, I always tell kids like go to the school that is going to be your plan A because if you do get hurt, if you do take a little bit longer to develop, they're still going to be invested in you. I, I do see kids every year who make the mistake of committing to the school that's the big name just because it's the big name. And there's a dichotomy here because you want to believe in yourself. You want to go and compete for your spot. And most likely if you're playing D1 college football, you're probably the best player in your high school team or damn near it. So it is hard for you to have that perspective of, hey, I was actually like the plan D here. And for the most part, these really good programs, if they have to reach down and pick, take a plan D for depth, they ain't going to miss the next year on their plan A, B, and C. So mm-hmm. they're going to bring in a player who's more talented than you in next year's class at your spot. So a good way to tell it is like, if they're pushing for you to commit, they probably really want you. If they're talking to you all the time, you know, they probably really want you. If they offer you and they talk to you once every couple of weeks, you may be somebody who's like a sleeper cell to be activated later. They're backup plan, right? <laughs> but on this, com- going back to the committable offers, the really only thing you have that is backed in a court of law would be the National Letter of Intent, correct? Sorry, EK was DMing me. Yes, that, that, that is Right, that is so that's what right. I'm like. That that's always my baseline. Like you can you can have a commitment, right? You can have a commitment. You can say, "Hey, the school offered me," but until you have signed on the dotted line, they can do anything they want, and it works both ways. Like the player can leave at the last minute, but the school could bail in the last minute too. Yes, I I think of verbal commitments for the most part, unless I know the circumstances, as like a dinner reservation. Right. Hey, I'm pretty locked in. You know, now that is a little more one way. I guess this is more two way. Like typically, if you, if you have a reservation, the restaurant, but they overbook too, right? Like you can have a reservation <laughs> and still be waiting 45 minutes when you get there. And like, wait, I had a reservation. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're clearing the sure, table right now. You, 
And I'm sure some schools are guilt, you know, more guilty than others of extending verbal offers than others. And so, I mean, I, I, cause I I've seen a lot of coaches on there kind of bantering back and forth about fake offers going out there. They're, they're like, yeah, we know what's going on. Like, and, well, and sadly, a lot of players believe some of these fake offers. You know? Also some high school coaches who we know mm. their kids post offers that never happened in order to drum up, drum up interest from other programs. Mm. You know, like if I post a mid-level Big Ten offer and a Mac school hasn't offered me yet, that's a decent way to get the Mac school to, to get the Mac school interested. Mm-hmm. Because it's the same, it's like the, even among coaching staffs, it's the same thing of the like reevaluation from the recruiting industry side of it, where if this kid gets an offer and it's way off from, you know, what we were expecting based on our grade, it is irresponsible to not at least reevaluate your position. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's it's like George O'Leary lying on his resume. <laughs> he really missed out on the twelve team playoff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blake Bortles could have done worlds of damage in the twelve team playoff. All right. Well, he did have an O in twelve, I believe, right? O'Leary? Yeah. 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 Without a doubt. And then Frost came in and fixed it. <laughs> uh all right. This next question comes from Rob. Hey guys, love the pod. Bud is probably the most informative podcast guy out there. Congratulations, bud. My question. I still think it's Tom. My question. (laughs) What programs and or types of roster setup will be most benefited from COVID super seniors? Is it rich get richer? Less talented teams will consolidate talent. Rosters with more upperclassmen or more underclassmen? Thanks. So who benefits from the COVID super seniors? Just this year or like overall? Oh, I, I think it's group of five. The examples that I've seen with the most robust uh, COVID super senior conversion rate, a.k.a. your entire senior class was given the opportunity to come back to places where it has been like double digits from your senior class are all coming back are Ball State from the MAC and Louisiana in the Sun Belt. Both of them, and both of them have starting quarterbacks. Both of them have key position players, um, like tackle leaders, sack leaders, it is in the double digits amount of players that would have otherwise exhausted their eligibility. Both of them coming off of conference championship seasons. To me, I feel like I've seen at the power five level, uh, rosters might be like a, a quick question might be answered here and there, but in terms of more than a handful, nearly a dozen or more players being added to the roster in the way they would not otherwise be. The two examples that came to mind for me were Ball State and Louisiana. And for that reason, I say in general, the top group of five teams, um, though the transfer portal and players who use the extra year of eligibility to go play somewhere else seems is like the one weakness in my theory because uh, I'm not really sure if that ties to any one program. But it's the age-old dilemma of is restart is the stat of returning starters good if those starters weren't weren't any good, you know what I mean? Like I think it depends on the program. But if what it, program if it was a it championship, is. yeah, yeah. But I was I was thinking right. of those two had been like sure. you had really Absolutely. really successful seasons, and the players that were responsible for that successful season have decided to come back in a way that they would not otherwise be. 
those two definitely stood out to me. So I, I think do- the Pac-12, I think the Pac-12 as a conference is going to benefit from it because they didn't have a lot of players didn't have the opportunity to showcase their skills. It was four or five games, so they decided to come back. Now I was looking up an example specifically. Arizona had 14 super seniors returning. Arizona State did. Like I wonder if that's going to be impacted mm. all of a sudden with some of this, you know, storyline that's coming out about the uh, illegal meetings that were taking place during COVID. Like if if there's a you know, something comes down, does that impact them? Clearly it would, but I think the PAC 12 overall is going to be a conference is going to benefit from it. I agree with both y'all. I also think it will be your sort of second tier developmental type programs. The programs who typically do not have guys go pro early, uh, but could really benefit from, for instance, a, a Wake Forest and, and Iowa State. I'm not Iowa State Twitter save it like I'm not comparing those two teams this year, but like they're more developmental programs. They take prospects who might have you know pretty good upside, but are not anywhere close to being ready when they get on campus. Thus, you're getting an extra year out of your investment in those players. I, I don't think it's a huge deal for the very best teams because their best players are not going to take advantage of that final year. Yeah, I also think you can like those developmental programs like Iowa's, Wisconsin's, those those kind of programs that have plenty of players go to the NFL, but typically they're not you know leaving as juniors. A lot of them. Uh, I don't think there's a wrong answer here, honestly. I I think that a lot of different teams and a lot of different people are going to benefit from it because, and I don't think that the benefit will be that significant for anybody just simply because everybody's kind of in the same boat. Like we've talked about in earlier shows this off season. It's like returning production this year is probably going to be at its most meaningless ever because everybody's got a lot of returning production. So nobody's really going to find a huge edge with it. You know, the nut Bill Connolly told us uh, earlier this off season, it's uh, it's higher than he's ever seen since running the returning production numbers. The median is higher. The The teams at the top are higher. It's uh, it's pretty much all across the board when it comes to returning production. Uh, all right, let's do one more. This is from Dylan. Hey, guys, love the show. Listen every day, either when I work out or when I'm driving. Nice. Especially love the stuff you guys do with 24-7 sports. I love hearing about programs I don't normally hear about on a day-to-day basis. I do have a question. I'm a huge Texas fan, so I was wondering why you guys don't talk about the Casey Thompson versus Hudson card QB battle. We've seen Sark take pretty much any QB and make them successful at an and at an elite level. What do y'all? Who do y'all think is QB one to start the season, and who do y'all think ends up at starting at the end of the season, and how successful do you think they will be, Dylan? The main reason we don't talk about it is because we are not serving just a Texas fan base. Like if I had to do a Texas podcast, which y'all should listen to on, on horns 24 seven, especially the flagship with chip and Taylor who do an awesome job. I would talk about the Hudson card and Casey Thompson debate nonstop because it's a QB debate among two guys who were, who were very talented recruits, but there's nothing going on right now that we can really analyze and report. They're lifting some weights. They're both being leaders. They're excited about the new culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Studying the playbook, really, working on install, watching film. It ain't really news. They're both the first guy in and the last guy out. They'll battle it out. We haven't seen any of them actually play much in Sark's system, obviously. Um, both are, are really talented guys. I, I don't know who's going to be the starter. I, I, I mean, I could guess. I'll, I'll just I'll guess Casey Thompson. 
But that's just I a would, guess. I have no re- I have no way of knowing yet. C- Casey right. Thompson was awesome in the bowl game, so in my mind, he's the starter. That's right. really how and, it works right now. But it also, I think it does favor him in a competition where if it's really tight, which I'm assuming it is because they haven't gone one way or another, and you know the returns from the spring game where you know everybody looks solid, we're happy, we're everybody's doing great. If it is a tight battle, they'll go back because they've seen Casey Thompson do it on the biggest stage. You know, he's been there and done that. Because there are guys that practice great and fall apart in games, but at least you know what you're going to get. Now, that doesn't mean he's locked in as a starter all year, but I think that would give him the significant edge in the quarterback battle because of that performance. The reason that I have not brought it up as like a burning question when as I've been doing any of my college football, just sort of like preparation and work, is because I felt like I put it to bed in the spring with the note of Texas should be okay with either Casey Thompson or Hudson card that whoever wins that battle, if they beat out the other one, then they should have the skills to be able to go out and help Texas at least meet expectations, whether they exceed them or not probably has to do with, um, you know, taking a level up, really being able to thrive in Steve Sarkeesian's new system. It would be a positive reflection on Steve Sarkeesian in the ways that Dylan wrote in his question. I don't know about, saying that Sark is a QB whisperer. I don't know if I'm yeah. I'm jumping all the way. I do, I do not agree with that part or that premise of the question, but I do agree that he, especially recently, has shown a great job of game planning and play calling. And so I just think that when you don't have a bad answer, I kind of put it that quarterback battle to bed until August, until fall camp comes around. And I'm like, we'll see who wins because I think you've got two good options. And you know what, Texas? And you know what, Dylan? Tons of programs wish they had two good options at quarterback right now. There are programs that don't have a quarterback battle that wish they had a quarterback battle with Casey Thompson and Hudson Card. So it's a pretty good position to be in. Some would love to just have one. Yeah. (laughs) Why isn't their win total higher than eight? If we're high on these quarterbacks, because that to me seems like we saw the blue chip ratio. They've got a lot of talent on the roster. You know, Sark is coming in to fix the offense. They had eight wins last year. Like, what's the issue here? Is it the question of quarterback or is it the turnover and philosophy? It's everything because you do start over. But I'm still a little bit surprised that it's eight. It's a a tough schedule. Yeah. I mean, they do. Even their non-conference. Yeah, because like that that Louisiana game to start the season. Like, again, this is like a team that we've talked about. Like this, this could be the best group of five team in the country next year. They've got a ton of returning talent. They they were very strong last year. And we saw them beat Iowa State last year. So that's a difficult game. At Arkansas is not going to be an easy game, especially the week after playing Louisiana. So, yeah, no, I, I think eight's probably right. I wouldn't be shocked at all. If Texas is the second best team in the Big 12 this year, I think that they are very much capable of that. It's just there's going to there's too many question marks and unanswered questions right now to just assume they're going to win more than eight games. I was very happy to play under nine against Chip with our cover three bet sheet, but I, I'm not really jumping to rush to the window and play under eight. I think that this Texas team is going to exceed that win total. Obviously, but the reason, another reason to buy into the eight, especially to think that Louisiana and Arkansas might be tough spots, is that when I go up and down the expected depth chart, I see a lot of um, like four star in state guys, you know, and it's a lot of coaches saying, and I tell you what, if so and so makes a leap, 
You know, we'll be really good at that position. If so-and-so makes a leap, we'll be really good at that position. And I just haven't seen at Texas within that football facility enough of that conversion of all of those players that are pretty solid four-star in-state guys because those four-star in-state guys help your blue chip ratio. But in order to win championships, you do need them to like take that next step in development. And I think that those are the question marks that I'm looking at for this Texas team and using that to justify the win total of eight. At the Edgewater Sportsbook and Entertainment Emporium, the total would be eight and a half. Because whole numbers are for cowards. Mm-hmm. Heard it here first. You can follow him on Twitter at BudElliott3. You can follow him at Tom Elliott. You can follow him at Danny Cannell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. See ya. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.